Will you please pray with me? Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I've shared before how at the age of 18, I had one of those life-changing or life-shaping events that many Christians experience. You know, I'd grown up in a Christian home. I was the son of missionary parents and leaders in our local church, and I was involved in Christian youth groups throughout my middle and high school years. I was an acolyte at church. I was polite. I was well-behaved, an A-grade student. I sang in the school choir, worked with a local charity, had a steady part-time job. I stayed out of trouble. And of course, I went to church every week. If you had met me, you might have thought I was an angel. Yes. (laughs) But no. (laughs) Surprisingly not. Underneath the surface, something wasn't quite right. A lot of the time, uh, I wasn't really walking the walk, or as you like to say, walking the walk, right? (laughs) Now, you may say that's not unusual. In fact, all Christians do this to some extent. We all still sin even after we're saved. But the thing was that I was living in denial of my sin. Justifying it to myself was really not all that bad. And convincing myself that in many cases, actually, it was just fine. So I stole, I cheated, I lied, I slept with my girlfriend, and I was pretty okay with these things, even though I knew that Scripture taught that they were wrong. Well, the summer I graduated from high school, I took a voyage of discovery, and I took, uh, saved money throughout the year, enough money to buy a plane ticket and to travel for a month in Malaysia, which was the country of my birth. Remember, my parents were missionaries, and I'd spent the first three years of my life and wanted to go back and see it for myself again. I wanted to reconnect with my roots, perhaps, or perhaps even the saying would be to find myself. But I was in for the shock of my life. You see, through a series of unfortunate events, which included losing my passport and tickets in Singapore airport, the Lord helped me to discover not myself, but himself. Truly on my own, 8,000 miles from home, I was stuck in need of a miracle and companionship on the journey. Well, I got the miracle, which was managing to get a new passport and tickets within 48 hours, and I was able to continue on my journey. But even more importantly, I found companionship too. Fortunately, I'd packed a Bible, I'd packed some daily study notes in my suitcase, and these became a lifeline to me. God had put me in a place where all I had was Him, and we had all the time in the world to spend together. And in our time together, He challenged me to make a change in my behavior and to live a life fully devoted to him, that I need to stop justifying certain sins to myself, to stop seeking to be in control of my life. I needed to actually follow Jesus. You see, the issue for many of us who say we follow Jesus is not that we don't know who Jesus is, it's that we stop short of fully surrendering ourselves to him and following him wholeheartedly. We're in this relationship for what we can get out of it. Perhaps it's the fire insurance on the day of judgment, right? We want the blessings of the relationship with God without the commitment and the hard work of and taking up our cross daily. We want what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace rather than costly discipleship. And in our gospel reading today, we have a story of another young man who's doing just this. He's justifying his lifestyle choices, even though they're contrary to God's teaching. And it's in an area of life where many Western Christians struggle. It's with our money. 
This morning, we're finishing up our sermon series called Generous Hearts, and we're spending four weeks looking at money and wealth and how God calls us to use it generously for the sake of his kingdom. And this week, I want to challenge us that following Jesus requires us to be wholehearted in following him, even with our money. Well, our gospel reading for today comes from Mark chapter 10. You can follow along if you want to in the scripture sheet. And it gets right to the heart of what stops many people in our culture from following the Lord wholeheartedly. And actually many Christians from truly growing in their faith. And in verse 17, we see a young man approaches Jesus. We discover in verses 21 and 22 that he's actually a wealthy young man. And for Jews at this time, having riches was believed to be a sign of God's favor in your life. So if you are wealthy, surely you must be living a good and righteous life. Well, this rich young man asked Jesus a seemingly innocent question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit, uh, inherit eternal life? But really, it's a pretty low question. And why is that? Well, first of all, no disciple in Mark's gospel ever calls Jesus teacher, not one. So right away, this man is setting himself up to look good in the eye of everyone watching. Not only is he wealthy and therefore righteous, he's also a man who seeks the teaching of the wise. Second of all, no well-instructed Jew would have been unaware of the need to keep the law. And so he already uh, knows what he believes to be the right answer, and he knows the crowd knows that. And so he's actually already coming confident that he's going to claim to have lived out this 100%. So he's clearly trying to impress Jesus and his followers. After all, in his eyes and by his standards, he is a good person. Matthew's version of the story reveals this to us. And you know, it's not uncommon for people to still believe this today. The famed New Zealand opera singer, Dame Kiri Takanawa, once said this of herself, I really believe I've been a good person. I might have stepped on a few ants and a few other things as well, but I've never hurt anybody. But our own perceived goodness is not enough to save us. And as Jesus quickly points out to this man, there's only one who is truly good. In other words, one who's completely without sin. And that is God himself. He sets the bar when it comes to goodness. And he is the standard. And so no one can earn their salvation by seeking to be good. None of us measure up. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as Paul reveals in his letter to the Romans. Well, next we see God's grace at work though. Jesus graciously reveals to this rich man, while he's still young in his years, with time to bring about change, that he cannot be good enough. He can never be good enough. None of us can. And I love how Mark records that Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And what we see is that his love is bold. It's a bold love. He doesn't just say, you know, that's okay, young man. Everyone does it. I forgive you. Right? He doesn't say that because that actually wouldn't be the loving thing to do. No, like any good parent who loves their child enough to correct them or to discipline them when they're going off track, um, he actually speaks the truth. Yes, Jesus will forgive him, but first, the young man needs to recognize that he's in the wrong and he needs to come to a place <clears throat> of repentance seeking to change his behavior in the power of the Spirit. Jesus loves him so much, he won't leave him where he is. He's going to help him move on into right relationship with God. 
And so in verse 19, Jesus takes the tack of holding up God's law before this man like it's a mirror. He is specifically the Ten Commandments and revealing himself to him as he does this. Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit. Uh, sorry, do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And these are commandments he would have known. He would have known these from a young age. And in doing so, Jesus is beginning to reveal a picture of the young man's heart to him, revealing his sin and his need for a savior. And what takes the young man a while, he's gradually, I think, understanding what Jesus is saying. But first of all, he keeps up the pretense, doesn't he? In verse 20, he says, teacher, all of these I've kept from my youth. But Jesus knows this isn't true. And he knows there's one commandment that this young man really is struggling with. And it's revealed discreetly in how he answers in verse 19 and then overtly in verse 21. You see, I don't know if you know this, but the first four of the Ten Commandments are all about our love for God. Love him first, have no idols before him, uh, don't take his name in vain, and keep the Sabbath holy. That's about our love for God. However, the final six are all about our love for our neighbor. Honor your parents. Don't steal, don't commit adultery, etc. Well, notice in verse 19, Jesus doesn't mention any of the first commandments about loving God. After all, Jesus already knows this man has something that's holding him back from doing this. And so he wants to get right to the root of the problem. Then also notice that Jesus mentions all of the final six commandments except for one. And it's the one that's keeping him from truly loving his neighbor, the root of the problem. Does anyone know which one it is? Anyone notice? It's do not covet. doesn't mention do not covet. Exodus 20, verse 17. This is where the young man hasn't loved his neighbor as himself. You see, because of his covetousness, his desire to have what his neighbors have, their money, their wealth, their possessions, in fact, to have more than they have, it would seem, he is selfish through and through, so much so that he's made his wealth into an idol that he's even putting before his relationship with God. And how do we know this for certain? Well, we know because of his final interaction with Jesus in verses 21 and 22. Jesus said, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. His wealth has become such an obsession that he is willing to give up the joy of eternal life forever and ever for the temporal and brief moment of happiness he will experience in this life. Well, it's at this point in the story that some of us start to break into a cold sweat, especially in the midst of a series on giving, right, where the pastor's talking about money. So I think, is he going to ask me to give up everything, (laughs) to sell everything and just give it to the church? Well, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to ask you to sell everything you have. Although, God may, (laughs) I have met one person who told me he did this once. But I do want us to ask you, I do want to ask you if your money or your possessions are holding you captive. I mean, let's be honest, materialism materialism is probably the biggest idol Our economy thrives because of the fact that we buy things that we don't really need just because we want to have them. And yet we convince ourselves that it's not all that bad. After all, look at that other family we know over there. They have way more than we have. They're the wealthy ones in our neighborhood. 
But let me share a few statistics with you that are fairly eye-opening. First, did you know that the typical person in the bottom 5% of the American income distribution is still richer than 68% of the world's inhabitants? Second, in 2023, the global median salary is reported to be $2,920 per year. Imagine trying to live on that. Also, half of the world's wealthiest people, the top 1%, live in the United States of America. Also, most of the people in this room are actually in the top 2% of the world's earners. And consider the fact that the average home size in 1953 in the USA was 1,000 square feet, but today it's at least 2,500 square feet and growing. And yet much of the world lives in 12 by 12 shacks. And that's not because of the current tiny home craze that's going on, right? But because that's all that they can afford. Friends, I say this not to make us feel guilty. Remember, it is not to have, wrong to have money. In fact, it's not wrong to have a lot of money. Now, I say it to help us understand that most of us have more wealth and possessions than the rest of the world will ever dream of having. And while this doesn't necessarily mean that our money will become an idol, it does make it more likely. And it does mean that it'll be much harder for us to enter God's kingdom, harder than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, as Jesus puts it later on in this chapter in Mark's gospel. But how do you know if money's an idol for you? Well, let's consider some of these questions that Tim Keller poses in his book, Counterfeit Gods. Thank you, Lizzie. The first question is this. Has money become your heart's preoccupation? Is it all you think about all the time? You worry about money over and over again. Second, is, it your, is your first impulse to spend money when you're sad, lonely, or bored? You know, you get some bad news perhaps, or you're feeling low, you decide, I'm just going to get on that Amazon app. I'm going to go ahead and order that thing I've been longing for, right? Or maybe I'm going to go out and spend some money um, down at town center, wherever it might be. I just need to feel that initial rush that I get when I go shopping. Thirdly, do you think having more money will make you happy or secure? Is that something in your mind? And often we don't. We might say, well, no, 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 no. But actually, if we think about it, when we have more money in the bank account, how do you feel than when you have less money in the bank account, right? We tend to feel more secure. Fourth, do you think having more money will make you an acceptable, powerful, or successful person? Perhaps money is a status symbol for you that you really need to have to feel good about yourself. Perhaps it comes out in the, the home that you own, or the car that you drive, or the phone that you use, or the size of your salary. These are things that you need for affirmation for who you are. And then fifthly, is your attitude towards money characterized by radically giving generous amounts of money to ministries, charities, and to those in need? You know, you love to give away your wealth and to see how God uses that for the kingdom. In fact, you are actively, actively looking to give not just to God's mission through the church, but to charities beyond that. If you answered yes to any but the last of these questions, then it could be that like the rich young man in our story, You've made money or wealth an idol, a stumbling block that will hold you back from being or having a generous heart and wholeheartedly following Jesus. Also, if the answer was no to all but the last question, then the question is, is there another stumbling block 
in your life that causes you to not be able to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. See, it's not just about money, is it? It could be your pride or your need to always be in control or your desperate need to be liked by other people or that desire to give your family everything they want, not just everything they need, or that unhealthy relationship that's leading you astray or the drug of choice that you keep turning to to numb the pain, whatever it might be. And whatever it is, Jesus says, if you would be my disciple, go give up that idol and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now you might be thinking, I can't do that. And what's the right answer to that? Yes, you cannot, right? We say it all the time. You can't do it. In fact, it's harder than a camel going through the eye of a needle, as Jesus puts it. But what does Jesus say to the disciples? You know, it's right after the rich young man leaves and they ask in astonishment, who can be saved? Who can be saved, Jesus? And Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You see, whatever the stumbling block is that holds us back from following God wholeheartedly, God, by his grace and his mercy, provides the way for us to be saved. On the cross, Jesus submitted his will to the Father's, and he died that we might live. And by his Holy Spirit, we can now have new life and follow him. Today, don't turn your back on Jesus like the rich young man did. Nothing is worth giving up our salvation for. Come to Jesus. Lay your idol at the foot of the cross and repent and turn to him. And begin by giving generously to his work through the church. How generously? Well, as our friend Clive Calver likes to say, if you were to multiply by 10 what you give to God, would it be enough for you and your family to live on? If you were to multiply by 10 what you give to God, would it be enough for you and your family to live on? This is the kind of generosity that God asks of us. And sometimes he asks more. And generous giving matters. In fact, this campus is the product of generous giving, the generous giving of many folks who would never have called it their church home. What do I mean? Well, folks from Sullivan's Island who gave generously each year enabled the planting of this campus. And ultimately in 2024, their giving has enabled us to become a new and independent church. Friends, I'll close with this. Something the Lord has laid on my heart this week as I prepared to preach. This new church we're launching has so much potential, but one thing that could hold us back is if we hold back in our generosity. And as I pray about this, the Lord continually brings me back to the book of Haggai. Yes, Haggai. That's a real book in the Bible. Okay, you may have never heard of it. I'm not making this up. It's tucked away in the Minor Prophets. If we had a sword drill right now where you have to find the book, I doubt many of us could find it but it's right there near the end of the Old Testament. And the prophetic word that God gives uh, is to the Jews, who after 50 years have returned from catastrophe. Okay, catastrophe happens, Jerusalem is destroyed, Israel is torn apart, many of them are taken off to captivity in Babylon. The dream of this promised land is gone. And then they get to return, amazingly. And after about 16 to 18 years of being back and rebuilding, which is interesting, that's the same length of time that we've been a campus, 16 to 18 years, you know, they've been rebuilding their lives, establishing new homes for themselves, but they've neglected to rebuild the temple. And so we read these words. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. 
You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Man, it stands out. It's a little bit scary, some of those lines. You who dwell in your paneled houses, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You know, might those lines never be said of our new church? Might we be characterized as a people who sow much and harvest much, who are content with what we have, even as we give away sacrificially of what was given to us, as we do that in our faithful and wholehearted obedience to him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that your word has much to say about one of our biggest challenges, to put our trust in money and wealth and in our possessions, to seek status or affirmation in those things when only those things can be found in you and in our identity as a child of God. Lord, would you help us to trust us in our giving and to be sacrificial in giving away of what you have given to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.